0: Hello, and welcome to Maine Golf Talk. We are your hosts, Zach Tomlow and Henry Fall. In these podcasts, we'll be discussing what makes Maine Golf so special. We'll be sharing our own experiences and knowledge as both players and coaches. We'll also
1: branch out to discuss hot topics in the game and chat with special guests to hear their stories, all to keep you in the know and help you improve your game. Let's get into today's podcast.
0: All right, welcome to another episode of Maine Golf Talk. Uh, Today, Henry and I are joined by a really special guest. We are extremely excited to have him on. He is one of the top three best teachers in America by Golf Digest, the 2009 PGA National Teacher of the Year. He's worked with two dozen PGA champions, LPGA tour players, most notably Zach Johnson. He is the founder of Mike Bender Golf Academy in Lake Mary, Florida. Mike? Welcome to Maine Golf Talk.
2: Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on.
0: How's Florida down there?
2: Oh, I'll tell you, record heat. That's pretty amazing for April. We've got, uh, today it's supposed to be 95 out. And uh, <laughs> so, you know, as hot as it is here in the summer, I'm not ready for this uh, hot weather already. So, uh, but with the, uh, you know, with what's going on and the virus and all that, we're we're certainly spending a lot more time indoors than we normally do. So, so it ha- have, haven't felt the effects of it that much yet.
0: Well, if you want to send some of that warm weather up towards, uh, Maine, I think, uh, we'd all gladly appreciate that. <laughs> uh, yeah, but it's not many
2: better places in the summertime though.
0: No, that's for sure. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's, this is Maine golf talk. Uh, I know you vacation in Maine, uh, can you tell us uh, where uh, where you vacation and what your thoughts on Maine?
2: Well, actually, every summer for probably the past twenty years, um, I have a really close friend, Larry Channing, and he owns a a cabin up up there in Booth Bay Harbor, and, and it's right on the right on the Damariscotta River. So what we'll do is we'll go up and play golf and during the day, and then we'll come home and jump in the boat and drive somewhere up the river for dinner, which is which is so you get the spectacular views and the great golf, and then you get to go look at the river and every, all the, all the lobster traps and everything that Maine has to offer on the water. So it's a pretty fun time. And we spend, we'll spend three or four days uh, up there every year. And we've done that, like I say, for a long time.
0: Yeah, you can't, uh, you can't go wrong there. Uh, so have you played Booth Bay then? Yeah, we, we, it's funny because I mean, well, we
2: used to, we used to, you know, play Booth Bay. We would play that probably one time. And it was back, you know, back in those days. I mean, when we started, I mean, it was dirt cart paths and, you know, the golf course was, uh, was pretty rough to say the least. And uh, so we would go play Samoset and, you know, Gary Sewell over there, at Samoset's a great friend of ours. And we go over there and play every year. And then, we might go up to uh, Belgrade Lakes and play or Sunday River or something to go play there. So we, we hit a lot of different courses around, and, uh, you know. But then when Booth Bay, you know, Paul Cologne came in and turned that around, as everybody knows. I mean, it's a pretty special place now. It's pretty hard to believe that what it once was and what it is now. The, the transformation has been pretty amazing. So now we, we tend to play that a little bit more a couple times and then maybe go to Samoset.
1: Yeah. What, what do you
2: think about the renovation there at Booth Bay? Oh, I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing really. I mean, just to see what, you know, it, I mean, the old saying, all it takes is money. Right. So, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but it, it's beautiful. I mean, they have the health club up there now. I mean, it seems like every time I go back, there's always something new. I think they have some accommodations right there at the golf course now. And, um, uh, and they've they've made a lot of uh, uh, changes they've lengthened some holes and changed a few greens around and everything so uh, it's it's a beautiful golf course I'm sure I'm sure you guys have played it as well right
1: yeah I, I played it a, probably about three years ago so they and they've made changes every single year and it's funny because Zach and I we both left it off of our top five list in Maine and we got some pushback from our listeners but I'm sure if I played it I'd be you know it's in outstanding condition it's probably the best kept course in the state um, and certainly they've they've made more changes year to year.
2: Well and then some of those there's a few holes that are up on top there of the kind of up on top of the hill where they've they they carved out you know they, they cut back back a lot of the brush so you can see for you know I don't know how many miles it is but it's, it's incredible. The views are incredible now. So, uh, unlike before when they, you know, all you saw was a lot of trees and everything. Um, so yeah, it, 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 would be hard. I think it'd be, you you probably, um, well deserve to get some pushback on that, (laughs) (laughs) but it's a tricky, it's a tricky golf course though. It's not that easy with the way the greens are and everything. And, um, you know, I, I I think they've had some main, you know, PGA events uh, on that golf course. So uh, I wouldn't be surprised if you see a lot more.
1: Yeah, I, I heard rumors about, you know, maybe trying to get, you know, whether it's LPGA or Corn Ferry to get up there at some point. So we'll have to see down the road if they, you know, are able to host a tournament um, like that. What did you think of like Belgrade and Sunday River?
2: Oh, I'm, I mean, those are great courses too. I mean, Belgrade is it's beautiful. That's and you know it's it's a bit more of a normal type championship golf course um, from the standpoint of the length of it and uh, the layout is 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 great. I love that golf course as well. But uh, I was I was listening to Austin and you know he was talking about how you know not many people think about going up to Maine maybe for a golf destination, but heck I think you could you could base out of Samaset or somewhere like that and then every day go travel off of a different area a different spot in the in the state and play just amazing golf so you know that's kind of a kind of a well-kept secret I think
1: yeah and it's, it's funny even the courses that are pretty close to the ocean like like Kibo Valley and Booth Bay and and even the ledges like those courses are still pretty hilly and ledgy and like it they, they just have so many unique features. Um, but then you go up into the mountains and obviously the, the views are spectacular there too. So you have, a um, quite the collection of courses, um, that you can play. Can you tell us a little For bit sure. more about, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about your relationship with Austin?
2: Well, he, yeah, he came, you know, I, I work a lot with the elite juniors and, and, and juniors come from all over the place uh, to train at our academy and everything. And and uh, Austin, you know, and his family, you know, showed up one day and we kind of hit it off and, and uh, you know, started working. And, you know, I think he'd come like once a month or so because and, 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 he lived over in Melbourne, the Melbourne area. And, uh, and we'd work and, you know, but I was always impressed with him because every time he came back, you know, you think a month, that's a pretty long time, but you know, he'd come back and his, and he w- he would be doing exactly what I asked him to do. You know what I mean? He would, he would go and work, work diligently at what I told him to do. And, and he stayed, it stayed with the program. And that's, that's a big, big piece of advice that I would give, and I think you guys, when you teach, you give as well to your students, and that is, is that, you know, in this day and age of information everywhere, internet, you know, um, golf channel, who knows, magazines, whatever, it's so easy to get information, but you really, you're really not doing yourself a favor by trying tips from all these different sources. You know, it's much better to to stay in one direction and and, and work and, and work in a, in a direction that I always use the analogy of driving let's say if I'm driving from Orlando to Chicago I'm following that map right I'm not going to drive all over the place and hope I get there and so you know and I think uh, that's sometimes challenging to do because if, especially with juniors because if they play in a tournament and somebody else does better than them the parents will look at that and they go well I wonder who's teaching that person you know so So you get a lot of jumping around and switching and things like that. And at the end of the day, it doesn't really pan out that well. And, and Austin stayed the course, did everything I asked him to do, and he just got better and better. It was really fun to watch.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's great working with, with him for that long. And obviously uh, it helps to have a coach of your caliber and, and and your playing career and, and everything coming from behind of that. And, Exactly. You wanted to chime in? Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, uh, Mike, you, you talked about, you know, keeping with one instructor and staying with the routine. You know, we just talked with Cole Anderson a couple of days ago and you know, he worked with Jeff Seavey for years and, you know, he jumped uh-huh. to, to kind of listen to George Gankis just to kind of get his ideas. But, uh, you know, he still goes with Jeff Seavey and he's grown and kept going that way. You know, you, you nailed it right on the head. I mean, we've, we were amazed by what Cole was telling us the other day. And, you know, I think, I think a lot of people would learn uh, from that.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, I mean, everything, you know, it's, it's fun to try new things for sure. And, and I kind of, you know, I, I did hear Austin on, on the interview with, with you guys talking about tendencies, you know, yeah, he, he has tendencies. I do in my swing. I mean, Tiger Woods does a, you know, so there's certain times, there's certain things in your swing that are easy to change and or your game for that matter and make them better. But, uh, but then there are certain tendencies that you have that are almost, you know, <clears throat> like that weed in your yard that you just can't get rid of. You know, it comes, you get, you get rid of it for a while and it comes back. So I think it's uh, important for players to understand what their tendencies are and when they pop up and when they start hitting the ball a certain way, then they, they know where to go to get, you know, to, to make that better. And, um, and sometimes, you know, you, 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 get that, um, you know, you get that ability to do that when you when you stay in a system or a same coach there for, for a number of years. So the comfort level and a confident level there too, as well.
1: Yeah. I love that mentioning, you know, about staying the course and, you know, you kind of talked about how, you know, in today's almost digital age, essentially everyone's looking for that quick fix. and you know, obviously with, with Austin, you've, you guys have stayed the course and it takes time. Golf is, uh, you know, in ways a difficult sport, but if you stick to it and practice hard, you can, you can get to a level like that.
2: Yeah, you're going to improve. And obviously it depends on, you know, how much time you have and what your goals and aspirations are for sure. Not everybody wants to be a PGA tour player, but But, um, you know, going from a 15 handicap to a 10, I mean, that, you know, that's fun to do too, you know, so, well, how do I do that? Well, you know, I need to have a plan and I need to have, you know, I need to stick to the plan and when I, and, and utilize my time efficiently when I get time to practice, you know, blend that in with the plane and things like that. So, you know, the secret to success is having, you know, knowing what that plan is and then you know being able again to kind of blend it with with the playing side and the practice
1: so Mike, let's transition to you uh growing up in Iowa, and you know i how you picked up the game and then also i I hear you're a self proclaimed uh tinkerer or sort of engineer, so can you talk a little bit about that
2: <laughs> uh well, when I was little i you know for whatever reason i mean we we lived in kind of in the woods in Iowa and and then uh, so we we had go karts and mini bikes and stuff and I was always you know always working on engines and you know in the in the winter I would take a wheel off of a mini bike and put a ski on there and you know I mean I was just and I remember when I was a little kid trying to make plans to make my own helicopter and <laughs> so <laughs> so I was always kind of wired that way to you know to figure out how things work and just be creative and so forth and then. You know, and and as I grew up, um yeah, I got into golf when I was twelve. My parents got divorced and um I moved to California with my mom. But every summer I'd come back to Iowa and visit my dad and the first summer back he he said, Hey, do you wanna go fishing today or play golf? And I go, I you know, golf. I don't know what that is. So I wanna I wanted to go fishing, but we couldn't find any equipment. But there was there was an old set of clubs in the garage, so we he grabbed that. He says, Let's go play golf and we went out to this, this uh really short nine hole course and we were going down the first hole and the, and the guy came out of the pro shop and said hey you guys you got to have two bags because we were playing out of my dad's bag and so they wouldn't let me play so I watched him play nine holes and I was so intrigued with it that the next day I went, went out and uh, I got some clubs from my my aunt and I went out to the course and I, I played every day after that all day long and uh, you know, just for whatever reason, I was I was kind of bit by by the challenge of golf, and and so you know ever since that time, I you know I was in the golf full time, and and uh, you know then I would go to California again, and I'd play basketball and golf out there, and then every summer I'd come back to Iowa and play golf.
1: Oh, that's great, and you know it's funny you mentioned the the challenge of the sport. You were told at 12 years old you can't play because you don't have your own set. <laughs>
2: Yeah, that was, that was, you yeah, know, looking back, that's probably a good thing that happened because it, you know, it made me just want me want to play more and try the sport. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was great. Uh, and it's been great ever since. I mean, I I love the, and the challenge of it and just working hard and, and you know, developing a, a consistent game and everything. I just, that was just, I always just wanted to be the best no matter what I did. So. It was it was pretty fun to be able to channel that energy into into a game like golf because of the fact it's of the challenges it presents and how difficult it is and it's really kind of a one on one sport unlike you know team sports are great but you can have a great day in a team sport and still lose where obviously in golf if you have a great day you win and or you play well and it's it's rewarding.
1: Yeah, very true and and going into I guess team sports talk about your time at Stanislaus state. Uh, you know, you guys win a couple of championships there and individually you win a couple of championships, the, the NCAA division three uh, national championship. What was that experience like?
2: Yeah, that was uh, well, what I, what I did is after high school, I went to Riverside city college a junior college, because back in my day growing up, there really wasn't the AJGA and, you know, kids didn't travel all over to play junior golf, they just played junior golf within their state or within their city. And so the recruiting process for college was quite a bit different. Um, they, the college coaches didn't really know of all the players like they do today. And so I really didn't have that many offers because I played most of my golf in Iowa in the sum, in the summertime. And I didn't play that much junior golf, to be honest with you, because uh, I was playing basketball in the wintertime. And, and so Anyway, so I didn't. I went to Riverside City College because I knew I could play there, and, and I had a I had a really good year for my first year there. I I, I finished 11th in the state, and then decided to transfer up to uh, Stanislaus State, which is a Division III NCAA school up in Northern California, and they had just actually won the national championship that year, and so I went up and I and I played with the coach and. I got done playing, and the coach says to me, "He goes, well, if I were you, I would go to Modesto Junior College another year and get more experience, because I don't think I <laughs> could make our team." <laughs> and I, I don't, I, I don't know what kind of name I called him, but I said, "I'm going to play number one on this team." I, I'm not really a cocky individual either, but I was just confident that I could play for him, and and so it motivated me. So I, so he says, "Okay," so I got on the team and right before the season, he came to me and he said, Mike, I have some bad news. He said, you're going to, you're not going to be eligible this season. And I go, why? And he said, because you took a speed reading class in, at, at uh, Riverside City College and the tra- and the credits did not transfer. So you're, you're transferring into the school without enough credits. So I was devastated and I had to sit out a year red shirt. And looking back, it was probably the best thing that ever happened to me because I was able to practice with the team and everything, but I, but I just got another year of, 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 you know, playing and working on my game. And so then I came back the last three years and, you know, was able, we won the national championship every year as the team. And then I won the national championship two years in a row. And in my uh, junior year that allowed you to go to the division one national championship. And I finished third behind Gary Hallberg and Bobby Clampett. So from a division three school that was a pretty that was kind of unheard of and uh it was really fun because I got to play on the all-star team we went to Japan and I'm um, here I am a division three college kid and up against all these guys Joey Sindelar Bob Tway you know Joe Rasset Bobby Clamp but all these guys and when I'm on this trip with them playing against the Japanese all-star so it was just it was a lot of fun yep
1: yeah I saw that you know it- I was kind of curious how you qualified for the division one national championship, but you alluded to that. And, and it, in that leaderboard, you beat out Fred couples and Bob Tway and Joey Sindelar. I mean, all um, PGA tour winners and obviously Fred couples. I mean, that, that name comes to mind uh, as far as a master's champion. And um, that's, that's yeah. really cool, that, that experience you had in college.
2: It was incredible, right? It was, it was a lot of, I mean, but I, I use that example a lot in my my coaching because a lot of these kids, you know, they feel like, boy, unless they go to a Division One college, they can't be any good at golf. And and I I tell them that's not true. I mean, you can go to a you can go to an NAI school and come out and make the PGA Tour. So, you know, so it's kind of you know I use that story a lot to motivate kids that to realize that you know once you get in college or or even once you get out of college, everybody starts from ground zero. So you don't really have an advantage if you went to, you know, an Ohio state or, you know, some big division one school or something.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it seems like finding a home base that works for you, where you are able to play and practice and you have a supporting team around you. I mean, you look at what Austin did and in deciding to, um, you know leave UVA and come home to Florida and and turn professional I mean that that seemed like a great decision ultimately
2: well I think that's changed a lot you know now now with you know the a lot of the Asian players and foreign players that are skipping college these days and you know and you know that never used to be the norm I mean that would be unheard of in the past I think in my day, Jack Renner was the only guy that I knew that didn't complete college before he went out on the tour and so forth. But, but in this day and age, if you have the talent you have the ability, you know, players are playing maybe one year in college, two years, and then leaving or, or a lot of times skipping college altogether. And, you know, you really see that a lot in the, in the, in the ladies, on the ladies tour, but, um, and I think you'll see more and more of that as go, um, because of just the players are just getting better and better at early, early ages. Yeah, absolutely. I mean,
1: I think of Rory McIlroy and what he was able to accomplish at such a young age and, and uh, just turning professional right away. But it seems like even the, even student athletes coming out of college, um, you look at Matthew Wolf and Victor Hovlin last year and what they were able to accomplish. I mean, Division One or whatever division these these uh, student athletes are coming out and they' they're not scared, they're not afraid they're
2: ready to win. Well that's that's the other thing is that the one thing that like I told Austin when he left you know and he decided to you know come back to Orlando, I told him I said, well Austin, you better be prepared to play professionally on these mini tours and everything for probably four to five years before you start making it. I said, now I'm not saying it's going to take you that long, but it's, but it's a possibility because, you know, you're seeing these kids in college and like you said, they're, they're getting four years of experience. And like Austin alluded to, it's free, right? Because they're flying all over, they're playing tournaments in Hawaii and, you know, all these different places where they have to travel. So, and, and they're playing against the the best players in the country and you know, so that that experience when you get out of college, it, it makes adds up. And so, if you skip college, you're obviously you're missing out on all of that. So, so it's it's quite it can be quite an expensive, you know, uh, decision because you have to have money for these entry fees, and you have to have you know the staying power, and you're you're never going to make it to the tour without playing full time, uh, no matter where it is. So, and and that that costs quite a bit of money because you've got to gain that experience and. And and that experience only comes from playing competition and tournament golf.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and building on your playing experience, then you you end up competing on the PGA tour for three seasons, it looks like, from eighty-seven to eighty-nine. And um can you talk us through how that,
2: you know, helped shape your coaching career? Yeah, I tell people that my first ten years, which is from nineteen eighty to ninety, I played full time. I said that was my some of my training ground for my real career, which was teaching. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, when I qualified for the tour, I mean, it was, uh, you know, it was one of the greatest moments of my life as from a playing standpoint, because that qualifying school is probably, well, I don't know. I think a lot of people would agree back in the day. I mean, that there's no, no tougher competition or pressure, than that I don't think, but um because you're playing basically for your livelihood and, and for a place to play. But you know, so once I qualified though, it was it was it was tremendous being able to, you know, play on the on on the highest level. And I always tell the story, my first tournament was out at Pebble Beach and I was on the driving range at like seven, six thirty or seven in the morning, nobody out there and I'm hitting balls and I hear somebody right behind me hitting and I look over my shoulder and it's Tom Watson. And he's hitting balls. And so I'm looking down now. I'm starting to get self-conscious, you know, and the crowd is starting to grow. And then I'm looking down. I'm hitting balls. The next guy walks up and sits down right in front of me. And I look up and it's Jack Nicholas. <laughs> so, so my first event, I'm hitting balls between Jack Nicholas and Tom Watson, which I've, I've never met. I've only seen on television. And it was like I was in a dream of some sort. It was pretty cool.
0: Well, luckily you didn't uh, pull a tin cup and uh, start uh, hostling him down the uh, the range there. So uh, no, it
2: was it was yeah it was a great. I mean, three years went by pretty quick, and I had some opportunities to win, and you know, but but uh, it, you know, I think the average age right now of a PGA Tour rookie is like twenty eight. So it takes a while, even out there, and and like Austin was talking about, you play against guys that have been playing there for years and years and what an advantage they have because they know, they know how the course plays in different conditions, different weather. And and you're out there as a rookie, usually getting one practice round, and then you're trying to compete against them. So who have that experience? So it's, uh, it's not, it's not easy. That's for sure.
0: So you, uh, you mentioned Bobby Clampett who, uh, you know, was most notably with, uh, Ben Doyle, the golfing machine. Um, can you talk about your influences, um, who influenced you to, you know, improve your teaching ability? Well, teaching and I mean, first of all, playing wise, I mean,
2: when I, when I realized that I needed some help, I, I, I went to Ben Doyle myself because, because of, at that time, Bobby Clampett was. Was kind of like the next Tiger Woods or the next Jack Nicklaus. You know, he was going to be touted as that. He was amazing in college, and so I went to see him and or his teacher Ben Doyle. And so I got an introduction to a book called The Golfing Machine, which was written by this guy Homer Kelly, who was a engineer, and he wrote a book on all the variations possible in the golf swing and all these different components that go with what. And so it was a very difficult. Anybody who knows that book would tell you that it's pretty hard to read that book um, unless you understand physics and science and but it is there are a lot of things in there the more you study it the more you understand how much physics and science had a part had a role in what's going on with swinging an object and putting an object in motion so so that was an early influence there and then from there when I went to the mini tours down in Florida um, I ran I you know David Ledbetter was just becoming known and he was working with Nick Price and Dennis Watson and and, uh, Nick Faldo and some of these players and great players, so I went to see him, and uh, because he was, you know, much closer than Ben Doyle out in California, so I got some, you know, learned a lot about what he was teaching, and what I would do is I would just sit there and watch him teach after my lesson, so I'd just, I'd hang out there all day long, and I'd practice, but I would also listen to what he was doing, and teaching other players because i really wanted to learn as much as i could and in the summertime i would go out into the midwest and play in the mini tours out there and i ran into a guy by the name of mike adams who is now i think number two on the golf digest list or whatever and mike is a great friend of mine and he had he was really smart about the golf swing so these these influences were kind of building my philosophy building my understanding of the golf swing and then the final piece was when I was on the tour after uh, one one round. I was I, I was with a friend of mine, Tom Siegman, who was on tour, and, and he was going to go see this guy by the name of Mac O'Grady, which uh, a lot of you know. A lot of people don't know that name now, but he's pretty. He you know he could break par left-handed and right-handed. But uh, but I went to see him. He was he was playing in the tournament, but we ended up spending about six hours in a hotel room and me sitting in the corner listening to him talk about the golf swing. And it was just, it was eye opening. That was my, that was my light bulb moment of my career uh, because it, it explained why I had the issues I had. It explained what you needed to do in the golf swing, how you, how you could have the most efficient swing possible. I mean, there was so much I learned in that time that, I just tried to hang around him every tournament I went to where he was playing. I would just try to hang around. Him. Eventually I got to be friends with him. And, and I uh, really got to spend a lot of time and, and learn a lot about the golf swing. <clears throat> so as far as my influence goes, I had those other guys for sure. But my biggest influence of all was, was Mac O'Grady.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. And you know, it's funny, uh, Zach and I were, I mean, we we both have have heard of Mac O'Grady and um, you know seen his golf swing even on like Instagram and stuff. And but uh, I think we both took a deep dive last night when we were looking up some some information. And I I read an article that he tried to qualify for an event both left-handed and right-handed. He asked if he could actually change his name to Mac O'Grady one and Mac O'Grady two and play in the same <laughs> qualifier both left-handed. And right-handed, um, and then he, I guess, won two events on tour putting left-handed.
2: Yeah, well, he did. He always putted left-handed, and um, and the event you're talking about was the Chrysler Team Championship, and he wanted to enter the tournament w- with Mac O'Grady right and Mac O'Grady left. And looking back, they should have done it. It would have been it would have been great for golf, but but uh, yeah, he he was, he was quite an eccentric person still is. I uh, I know he's, he, he bases out of Palm Springs and, um, you know, he just, I remember one time Ledbetter in a seminar saying nobody knows more about the golf swing than Mac Grady, but that doesn't necessarily make him a great teacher. And I, I, I think that, that, that statement was pretty, pretty right on the, right on the spot.
1: Yeah. Interesting. That's, um, yeah. So, um, Zach, can you mention your golfing machine real quick? Sorry.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, uh, it was funny. You, you mentioned the golfing machine. Henry and I were just talking about it before you jumped on and, you know, Henry is asking me about if I've read it. And I think when I first, when I first became uh PGA, I was like, you know what? I want to read every book possible, you know, get knowledgeable with the golf swing and I bought the golfing machine. I think I read about four pages and it was just so, <laughs> you know, it's, it's intricate and it's uh, very scientific. And, you know, at 21, I, I definitely wasn't ready for that.
2: Well, it, it, it basically is written in engineering terms. So it would be like, it would be like all of us trying to read a medical journal or trying to read something on how to do some sort of surgery. I mean, we, you know, that's, unless you know those terms, it doesn't make any sense. And then like a true, you know, manual. I mean, it, what it does is it, it'll send you to page 68 and then you read that and then you'll come back to the front of the book and then it'll take, take you to the back. You know, it's, it makes you jump around. And, and like, like you said, if, if you're reading that for the first time and, you, and you're and you not prepared for really kind of what kind of book it is, it'll be, it'll be something that you probably don't get very far in for sure. Yeah. I mean, and,
1: I I guess it just goes back to, you know, where everything started for you being a sort of tinkerer engineer. I I think that it sounds like you really connected with um, these influences uh, because of that, you know, where you started. And uh, it sounds like Mac creative in a way is a little bit like a Yoda, you know, where um, you guys were able to uh, develop your teaching skills based on you know, all of these, uh, engineering, uh, mindsets. So, and I, well, you know, I, I heard heard rumor, revo-
2: yeah, go ahead. Right, sorry.
1: I was just going to say, I heard, I heard a rumor too, that when you were, you know, during your playing career, at some point you were putting left-handed
2: as well. Is that true? That actually happened after I got off tour. Um, I got, I got the, uh, unmentionables meaning the yips, <laughs> And I was always a really good putter and I tried everything. I tried the long putter and all these different things. So I actually went to left-handed putting myself and, and I, and I have no problem left-handed. I can, I putt really well that way. So, uh, yeah. So, but that, that was more out of necessity than it was necessarily following Mac O'Grady, but uh, or the golfing machine. But I think the thing that's important is, is that, um, you know, the golfing machine and the, and the physics and all that stuff is, is you know what I'm? Not, I always tell people I'm not smart enough to think and and to communicate in those types of terms. And so, I everything when I teach it's all it's all you know easy to understand. And I don't use the big terminology and all this kind of thing because nobody. It's just like reading that book. You can't understand it if you don't know the term. So if you try to, if you try to teach that way, you're not going to be very effective. And so I think. I think all of us that, that are teachers in golf, we we are using those some of those principles, and sometimes we don't even know it. But when we teach a swing on plane, or we're, we're teaching some sort of, you know, trying to create speed and doing some of these elements that, that are really a byproduct of physics, you, you know, you're, we're teaching it in, in a way that, that students can understand, but yet it still adheres to the principles of physics, which, um, you know, which is in my opinion, the better way to go in golf, because, you know, you're not fighting them, in other words, but if I use my muscles and my strength to fight physics, I can still do that, and I can still put the club head on the ball, I'm just not going to be very efficient, and I'm not going to be very consistent, because it's difficult to time all, you know, on a regular basis, so, um, so anyway, I think, I think we're all using that to some degree.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and Um, so then you, you know, you, you kind of start a home base, I suppose, down in Florida. It sounded like you were at a couple places, but how did that come to be? And, and then can you also talk a little bit about the MEGSA PPE, the most efficient golf swing attainable, perfect practice equipment? That's pretty crazy. That's pretty cool.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, I, you know, what happened to me in my career was, is I would get a lesson from, let's say Ledbetter and, and I'd go away and I'd work on it and I'd go back and, and back in the early eighties is when video cameras came out. And that was kind of when I was doing this. And so uh, Ledbetter would put me on camera. I'd go in and look at my swing and I would be totally frustrated because I worked all week long or two weeks in a row trying to change my swing. And I felt way different. It felt like I was doing what he wanted me to do. And then I go look on that video and I'd see the same old thing I saw last time. And I, I mean, I was shocked but to be honest with you. And, you know, the old saying, you know, feel is not real is, is is coined from that experience that people go through. So so once I got off tour and I started teaching, I would give a good lesson. The player would start hitting it better. They, their swing would look better and everything. And then you know, they come back a week or two later, and we get on video, and they 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 be right back to what they were doing before. And I go, do you feel like you're still doing it? And that what we worked on? They go, oh yeah, I worked on that really hard. You know, so so what happened is, is they were experiencing the same thing that I was, that I went through. And so from that experience, I decided, you know what, I'm I need to start to build some feedback stations to where I could put somebody in there and the only way they can swing is if they do it properly. Otherwise they're going to bump into something and get immediate feedback. And, um, and so that I started doing things with noodles and shafts, like a lot of us do anyway. And And I, and then I decided that, Hey, you know what, I'm going to build some equipment like Nautilus style equipment where people can get in and we just turn their settings to what their settings are. They get in there and then depending on what swing flaws they have, we can put pieces in place that will produce barriers where they have to swing you know, around them, under them, or inside of them, what may be, to get feedback so that every swing they make, they're improving and they're getting better and they're developing the proper feel for what the real, what the proper move is. And so once I started doing that, I, I started seeing tremendous results. And people changing dramatically in a quick amount of time. And um, so it just made me realize that hey, if you're gonna if you're serious about changing your swing and you don't use any feedback, you just go out there and you just try to use your brain and you think about what it is you're trying to do, you're probably never gonna change. And if you do, you're probably not gonna change much. But on the other hand, if you go out there and you have some feedback where and, and also included in that would be you know, exaggeration, trying to exaggerate the move and then doing it in conjunction with feedback. Now you're going to really make some serious progress on your swing and, and you're going to develop, like I said, the proper feel so that when you're out of that station, you're still going to know what the feeling is that produces the proper look. And so that's how that equipment came about. It took me 11 years and, um, and now we have four stations in, in bays that are my Academy and we use them. They're in use every single day.
0: Yeah. It's great that you, you know, you talk about exaggeration. I mean, you look at somebody like Alex and Nora and Justin Rose who during their practice routines, you know, you'll see them over exaggerate what they would want to feel in the golf swing. I mean, you look on video, they don't do that, but it's just trying to get that feel, which is, you know, which makes makes us so great.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think you, uh, you know, like you said, I, in my career, I've only seen 12 people overdo anything that I taught them. So that's how rare it is for somebody to come back to you and all of a sudden, let's say they've gone from a super upright swing plane to a super, super flat swing plane. The chances of them ever hitting enough balls and grooving that are, you know, pretty – pretty rare put it that way and a stat I always tell people when I'm in lessons I kind of don't like to say this sometimes because it could frustrate people but I say well how many balls do you hit in a normal practice session And, and the player says well you know I'll be out there I'll hit probably 100 balls I said okay if you hit 100 balls and it takes about a second and a half to hit the ball so if you multiply that by 100 that's 150 seconds divide by 60 it's two and a half minutes so I said every hundred balls you hit you're actually getting two and a half minutes of practice on your swing so I said that's why that's why you better make sure that if you're hitting those hundred balls that you're doing it in a manner that's going to really make a difference uh, otherwise you're probably just more
0: or less getting exercise yeah I, I completely agree um you know I Cole when we had a uh, Cole on we were talking about uh practice and you know understanding how to practice correctly and I think you know a golfer could really improve if they learn how to practice correctly and not just hit ball after ball after ball um but you know take the time to actually work on what they're doing
2: yeah and I, I heard Cole talk about how his coaches will have them almost submit like a practice plan or the, or the, either that or the coaches gave them a practice plan for the day and they had to do certain things. And, you know, so, I mean, everybody likes direction. I mean, that's probably one of the questions I get the most to say, well, if I've got an hour to practice, what, what do you want me to do? Well, what should I do? You know? And so I think if you can provide people with that kind of instruction and and so they know, okay, for the first 30 minutes, we're going to work on the long game. We're going to work on our swing technique and here's how we're going to do it. And then, you know, then we're going to go do some short game work. And these are the drills I want you to do. And, you know, so if you can lay that out, I mean, I think people are more motivated to practice and they feel better about their practice session when they're done. They really feel like, Hey, I really accomplished something. I I got through this and, and uh, you know, it was challenging and and it's going to make me better.
1: Yeah. And I think that speaks to, you know, your training aids as well and the, and, you know, this magzip PPE. I mean, it's, it's quite the contraption and, you know, people get in there and I, I've seen some videos on your Instagram where they're using it. It's, it's really cool to watch, but you also, like I said, have the bender stick and I see you using an impact bag a lot and it's, you're almost applying a consequence, right? So you're again, going back to having to exaggerate or force a certain movement as opposed to just going out in the range and thinking, okay, well, I'm I'm going to swing more from the inside today or I'm going to swing more uh, or get my hands more out in front of it. Like it, at some point, um, I think utilizing a training aid, assuming it aligns with what you're looking for, it can really be a benefit.
2: Yeah. And I think, I think the thing to do is to use them and then then do it without it. So going back and forth is really to me, important otherwise a lot of times you really get good at a drill or you after a while with a training aid your brain kind of shuts off and it's just automatic because the training aid is almost in some sense doing it for you so so I think it's it's important to to kind of go in and out of those things and and um, and if you're and if you do that again uh, properly you you really make you know it's easy. It's not easy, but it's easy to, it's much easier to make swing changes and, you know, everybody wants to get better at golf. And I think the hardest requirement in the game is having a consistent repeating swing where people know where the golf ball is going to go. And, you know, I mean, everybody can putt better. And and, and then putting is certainly the most used club and it's really important, but it's, it's a lot easier to train than hitting a, you know, a seven iron, you know, the same way every time or hitting a driver and hitting, you know, 10 fairways around. So, so I think people want to work on their golf swings and I think they enjoy hitting golf balls, but I think that what's missing is the education as to what it takes to make the swing change, number one, and then, and then also having ways in which to do it. That's the key. You know, you got to have a way that, that makes that person uh, produce the move that they need to in order to create the consistency or more speed or what have you
1: oh that 's great and and continuing on on practice, tell me about this world famous wedge range and how it helped a future masters champion
2: <laughs> well one one year zach uh, you know we we have a team of, of people together, and we every year we go through his stats and and we would pick out what's good in his game and what needs to improve. And one year, he needed to make more birdies on par fives. And since Zach is an average length hitter, he doesn't hit it long. He doesn't hit it short, though, either. People think he hits it short, but he hits it a lot longer than you think. But having said that, he's still going to be, you know, harder to reach all the par fives than it would be for somebody like McElroy. So so his wedge game needed to be sharper. So, so I told Zach – from day one i said zach you've got to you've got to hit the ball on a consistent trajectory with your distance wedges Uh, much like i use the analogy of a cannon at an old fort. you know the old cannons that shoot cannonballs if the barrel of the cannon is fixed what determines meaning it can't go up or down what determines how far the cannonball goes would be the gunpowder that you put in there well in golf we are the gunpowder And so what happens though when people hit wedges, they they normally hit them too high and their launch condition, sometimes the wedge will come out at let's say thirty degrees, and then the next time they hit one, it comes out at thirty-five degrees. So the same gunpowder produces two different distances. So the gunpowder aspect of, of is called feel, right? Everybody goes, Oh, that person has good feel. Well, usually they have good feel because they're consistently launching the ball, whether it's a chip shot or a a wedge shot they're consistently launching it at the same angle all the time and therefore then they can just dial in the feel or the gunpowder to make the ball go different distances so basically in wedge play the distance wedge is 25 to 27 degrees is the proper launch window so what i did is i created a wedge range where there's ropes that hang across out in front of the player that at 24 degrees and then there's one at 35 so it creates a, it, it creates an in space there um, some awareness of what the trajectory you're launching the ball is. And so I did that. And then what I decided to do is I decided to put um, concrete blocks in the ground. From, they're four feet by four feet blocks. And I put them in the ground from 30 yards on out to a hundred with the goal of trying to land the ball on the blocks because Again, great wedge play is having control over how far you fly the ball, because some greens, you need to fly it beyond the hole and back it up, and other greens will, will release more, and you need to land them short. So you really have to have great control over your landing point of the golf ball. So, um, so I built these blocks for Zach, and uh, we went out, and, uh, and I asked him, I said, Zach, today we're going to see how many, time, how many balls it takes you to hit all of these blocks. And so he did it, and it took him 168 shots to hit. There was eight blocks, 30 through 100. And so he he was he started working on it. We started working on trajectory and curving the ball from right to left, doing some things that we need to do for good wedge play. And um, you know he got it. He got his course record down to 99, and then pretty soon he got it down to where he hit all the blocks at 50 shots. And that's that that year he actually won the Masters. And as, as most people know, he laid up on all the par fives for the whole week and he birdied 11 out of the uh, 16 par fives and and ended up winning the tournament.
1: Yeah. I mean, you're talking about one of the best wedge players, uh, probably the last 20 years or or so on tour. And, um, does he still have the lowest score on this wedge range or?
2: Actually there is, um, Aaron Dew, who is a, it was one of my students. He's got a full ride to Berkeley um, next year and he's one of the top juniors in the United States. Um, He just set the record the other day at our wedge range. And I think he hit it in 20, I want to say 27 shots. I I don't I mean, it's maybe it was 24. It was unbelievable though. It's a record that I don't think there's going to be beat anytime soon, but it was, it was pretty funny because, uh Eduardo Molinari came out to my range and he said what's this wedge range thing? You got to hit all the blocks and Jonathan Bird's name was on the on there at, at 38 balls he had the record professional record. So Molinari says, "Well, I want to try that." I said, "Go ahead, you aren't going to beat 38." And the first time he does it he he, he gets 38 and ties <laughs> I go, "Wow, that was amazing." He said, "Well, I want to do it again." I said, well, you only get one chance a day. He goes and he says, well, I might not be back again. I said, go ahead, you can try it again, but you aren't going to be 38. And he and he does it again. and gets 33. And so he's on our board as the lowest professional record. And that was that was probably the greatest display of wedge control I've seen out there because of you know two times in a row he just tortured it. So it was pretty amazing.
0: Yeah, that's, that's incredible. Um, yeah, I've seen pictures of that range and I mean, for both those scores, that's, I, I can't believe it. Um, you know, another record that I don't think anybody's going to be able to beat is, uh, your record as a caddy, what, uh, 50% uh, success rate.
2: Yeah, I put, I, I was, I tried to retire at a hundred percent after after <laughs> we, uh, caddied for Zach and he won John, John Deere, but, just recently Zach asked me to caddy in phoenix um because he was going through a caddy change and and um and so his new caddy wasn't available at that moment so so i came out of retirement and unfortunately we we didn't win again but I'll, but i'm still pretty good 50%s not bad
0: yeah that's uh that's definitely uh, hall of fame numbers for sure
2: <laughs> yeah that was that was that was good i mean i think as a coach and a former player and stuff, I mean, going out and caddying for Zach, it's, it's really educational from a perspective of of both of us. I mean, I'm able to see how he, how he's thinking right at the moment. I'm, I'm able to see, um, you know, what, how his reactions are after certain shots. Um, You know, it, it really, it really has been good for both of us to do that on occasion and I think he would, if he was here, he would probably agree, you know, say, say the same for sure. What comes out of that has been really good. And um, in Phoenix, you know, we missed the, actually missed the cut by shot, which is a long story in itself. But, but I mean, I told him, I said, Zach, I said, you know, when, when we won at um, John Deere, I said, there's no way you hit the ball any better than you did at Phoenix. So, it's it's interesting how how what a fine line there is sometimes between that winning and 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 just barely making the cut or missing the cut or whatever. Um, so a lot of times you don't realize how how good these guys are.
0: Yeah, um, and you know that John Deere win that you were on the bag for it. I mean, I remember that shot that he hit out on uh, the second playoff there. That was that was quite the shot. That's for sure.
2: That was amazing and and it, it, we couldn't see it cuz the sun was in our eyes and it was kind of coming off the water there so but but listening to the crowd's reaction you know as it got closer and closer to the hole the, the 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 sound just got higher and higher and higher so um it it was fun but you know I I always tell people I got to walk down the 18th hole with the winner twice cuz in regulation everybody gave him a, an ovation like he had already won cuz he had a two shot lead and the guy behind him happened to make an eagle on 17 and end up tying him. So, um, so anyway, when we when I got to go down the next time when when he did win the tournament, it was so <laughs> I, I got that feeling of walking up 18 twice to a winner's ovation. It was pretty special.
1: Yeah, that's that's awesome, and you know it just sounds like you and Zach have a have a great relationship, both being from Iowa as well. And can you talk a little bit? Um, about that two thousand seven masters and what that did for his career and what that did for your
2: career, well, I always tell people I got a lot smarter after Zach won the masters <laughs> but uh, it was interesting because when early in the week, when you know I go there early in the week and usually uh, through Wednesday, um, sometimes I stay for the tournament, but that particular week I was there through Wednesday and, and we actually walked off the course on Tuesday cause he wasn't hitting it well. And we went over to the driving range and, and, uh, I felt like his, his swing had gotten kind of short and fast. And I, so I, we went over the range and we started hitting drivers and I told him, I said, Zach, what I want you to do is I want you to make a full swing and hit it and make a full swing and, and fly the ball about 200 yards or or so 200 210 something like that and back in those days at 07 the, the driving range had a big net behind it because it backed up to Washington Boulevard and so most of the players on the range were hitting drivers uh, and they were in the, they would hit way up on the net and you could see it hit the net and the ball falling down and so here comes Zach and he's making these full swings and full finishes and he's hitting the ball about 200 yards and I could hear people in the stands going look at that guy he can't even get the ball out of the net he goes. Well, I can hit it as far as him. <laughs> I was kind of over there biting my towel. You know, I was laughing just listening to these people. You know, and I, I can only imagine what they thought after he won the tournament. You know, they probably were scratching their head. like, how could that ever happen? But, but it was just an exercise we were doing to get his tempo back. And then as, then then we would have him hit it like 240, and then go go back to more of a full distance swing. But, you know, and I and back at home watching and I'll never forget because coming down the stretch I mean his rhythm was perfect I mean it was it, it, you couldn't tell whether he was hitting a wedge or a driver the tempo of his swing looked exactly the same and it told me that he obviously had good control over his nerves and and uh, he kept that that feeling going throughout the whole tournament
1: Yeah, and you alluded to the fact that, you know, he has a lot more speed than people think. I I remember watching him at what used to be the Deutsche Bank in Boston and also this last winter out of the Phoenix Open, and and he really puts a move on it. I mean, it looks like he plays primarily a little tight draw, but, um, you know, he's by no means a slouch. He's an athlete for sure.
2: Yeah, he, you know, he can fly it. You know two two eighty 270, 278, seventy eight two eighty then it rolls out to whatever, depending on the course and everything, so he hits it plenty far um but but yet you know there's a, that's the beauty of golf there's lots of ways to play the game and and if you don't hit it as far as maybe some of the guys like Dustin Johnson and McElroy and all these guys, you can still compete in golf, but you just have to compete different ways you you know he has to be a wedge master he has to, he has to hit the fairways. Um, An interesting stat out on tour is, is that if you hit the ball, if one person hits it in the fairway and one person hits it in the rough, the person that hits it in the rough has to hit the ball 70 yards longer to have a, have an advantage over proximity on their next shot. So if Zach Johnson's at you know, 170 and Dustin Johnson has to be all the way at a hundred yards from the green to have an advantage over Zach playing out of the fairway. So, you know, as, as people are so enamored these days with distance, which is, it is fun to hit the ball far, no question about it, but when it comes in terms of scoring, you know, keeping the ball in that fairway, you're going to have plenty of opportunities to make birdies. If you're, if you're, you know, if you're a good, decent iron player, but you know in Zach's case he needs to he needs to drive it well he needs to wedge it well and he needs to putt well and if he does those things well then like, like he's done throughout his career then he's going to be in comp you know in contention and and he's going to win a lot of golf tournaments.
1: Wow what a great stat and um, the information for our listeners that's awesome uh, you know Zach has two majors the Masters and an Open Championship at St. Andrews I don't think you can be those two for majors,
2: huh? I know. Pretty amazing. I tell people, you know, that one common element in both of those, and when he when he was at John Deere before he went to uh to over to St. Andrews, I said, Hey Zach, how do you like St. Andrews? He goes, That's the worst course in the rotation. <laughs> he goes, I don't like that course. And so after he won that night or whatever, I when I talked to him, I said, Zach, how do you like St Andrews now? And he goes, I love that place. You know, so <laughs> how things changed, but the two things he had in common is is he wasn't hitting the ball that well on Tuesday at Masters and in his mind he didn't necessarily like St. Andrews that well. So his expectations were down. And and sometimes, you know, in golf when it's like beware of the sick, you know, animal or the sick golfer or whatever I mean sometimes when when expectations go down the player is way more relaxed and they actually play way better and um, I think those I think that had a somewhat of a significant effect in both of those tournaments for him because he didn't go into it you know maybe with a top finish or something and and feel like okay I'm going to go win this kind of went in there just relaxed and just played his game and came out on top, which was pretty neat to watch.
1: Yeah, that's great. And, you know, you, you said you were at Augusta National when he won. but right? Were you at St. Andrews or were you home watching
2: on TV? No, I was at home watching with everyone and going crazy, watching <laughs> him in the playoff, trying to hit a flop shot over a bunker off of concrete on 17. I about, I about tore the TV. <laughs> <I> said, <laughs> chip it to the left, chip it to the left. he. <laughs> he's hitting the flop shot and I'm going, Oh my, ends up getting that up and down. He ends up get, hitting it over the green and getting it up and down, making a six footer for bogey. So, I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's it's tough to watch on TV sometimes.
1: Yeah, that's, man, that's just great. And I, you know, I'm sure with, with all the years you guys have worked together, you've built up quite a friendship and professional relationship, obviously. And then you know speaking of uh relationships and and you know who's been part of your life you get voted in or named the two thousand nine p g a teacher of the year, can you talk about um you know that award and and being that's voted on by your peers what that what that felt like
2: yeah, I mean that you know for teachers to me that's that's like winning the masters and um, you know I've never in my life i've never sought after awards or, you know, gone after things like that, because I, you know, I just want to do what I do as well as I can. And, uh, and, you know, taking my experiences and helping, you know, helping players play better at golf. That's why to this day, I mean, I, my book is not limited. I don't, I mean, I'll, I'll be on the tee teaching a beginner and then maybe an hour later I'm working with a, with a professional. So I just, I just enjoy helping people, you know, play the game better. And, um, you know, it was when I was up for that award, it was, it was just to be considered for, it was quite an honor, you know, amongst my peers. And, and, uh, I, 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 I kind of was in the finals two or three years in a row and then that I won that award. And, and to me, I mean, the, it's still unbelievable to this day. So I, I just, uh, appreciate those that felt like I was worthy of the award. And, and, uh, and I just, you know, it's kind of that old saying, when you, when you enjoy what you do, you never work a day in your life, and I think, I think I'm definitely feel that way for, in my career, for sure.
1: Yeah, that's awesome, as, as two PGA members, you know, Zach and I, we, we really admire what you've done, and I, I think that, you know, what you've also done with, like, Instagram, I mean, just the fact that we're able to, get some insight and watch a few lessons. That's just, that's so cool. I I know I read a, an article, um, the PGA puts out a newsletter, I believe like once a month. And I, I read this back last spring about how you hired a sort of Instagram manager to come in and and film and help you with getting more, uh, you know, outreach, I suppose. And and now your Instagram following is massive. And I, I just think it's great that you're, you're willing to share and connect with all of us in, in that way.
2: Well, it's been a lot of fun. And, and um, the the person that's doing this is just, they don't get any better than him. I mean, he's a teacher himself and had a long career teaching and he, he's a student of the industry. I mean, he knows what other teachers teach. He follows it closely. He's, you know, so, and we had a, you know, he, he would follow me from seven in the morning till six o'clock at night for months and months and take notes and, I mean, he he learned he learned the my philosophy inside and out and uh, you know and just to just to have him you know doing what he's doing and and putting this out on Instagram and doing the job he's doing is is just a, a very, something that's really special, very unique. Uh, my relationship with him is like mine with Zach. I mean, he's a great person and and uh, you know it's doing a lot for the industry. Hopefully, or at least showing some things and then. I'm also what i'm what I'm working on right now actually have it right in front of me is I'm working on a an instructor training program it's going to be a three level program and it's going to be probably the most um, i think it's going to be the most intensive program for for training teachers how to teach so I think you know if, if people want to learn how to do that or, or a young instructor wants to learn how to do that and you know it's tough because in our in our yeah, as you guys know, I mean in our business there's really nowhere to go. I mean the PGA tries to give you some books and you have to pass a few tests and things like that, but but teaching the game of golf and is kind of be like becoming a doctor. You don't you can learn everything through books and all that, but getting out there in the trenches and working with students and you know, that's how you really get better. And so if I can kind of pass on, I'm getting to the age where I just wanna, you know, help Help other instructors be able to teach well and have a great living and and have confidence in what they're doing. So I'm pretty excited about this program and looking forward to launching it here in the near future.
1: Yeah, that sounds great. Um, you know, I, I'm curious, you you mentioned your philosophy, I suppose, is, do you believe in a certain um, group of fundamentals or uh, or a couple of things that you prescribe for most of your players? Is there anything you, you kind of consider a method?
2: Well, I think, you know, this is, this is a, a great topic and, and, you know, I'm not going to take a lot of time, but it's a great topic because people and teachers aren't always afraid to say, Hey, I'm a method teacher or because, because just semantics, what that, what that kind of sounds like is if you're a method teacher, then, every single person is going to get the same lesson and you're going to teach every single person to do the exact same thing. And that's not really what that means. I mean, really what it means is, Hey, I have a philosophy that I think works really, really well. And it's very efficient and there's fundamentals within that philosophy. And I think all of us as teachers have that. Otherwise, I mean, otherwise you would do a beginning lesson of 10 people and you teach every single person in the group, a different grip. I mean that doesn't make any sense because there is a grip that that you probably think that is probably going to give that person the best chance of hinging the club, releasing the club, doing the things they need to do, right? So so we all as instructors have preferences or methods or philosophies that we follow. And so and if you don't have that, then I think you're just you're like a ship in the ocean wandering around without a rudder. I mean you're just going from you're just going to follow whatever the trend is at the moment on, on Instagram or, or the latest golf channel tip or whatever. And I think that's a, you know, that just doesn't, doesn't really help a lot of people. So, so I think it's important to have a philosophy. I think it's important to have, you know, solid fundamentals that you teach, that you think are that you would like to see most people that want to improve over time. Now, giving a tip, that's a different story. And teaching tour players is a different story because they've already made it to the PGA tour with what they have. Like, like no one would go and try to change Jim Furyk's golf swing dramatically with that upright and that big loop or Matthew Wolf, right? Because they've already made it. But if you had a 20 handicap who had Jim Furyk swing, you'd probably flatten him out and make it turn better and, you know, do some different things to make him have a better swing and and, and therefore get better results. So, you know so as far as the philosophy goes you want to have a solid philosophy but then you also need to have the freedom because some people are built differently and and they have different injuries or different ranges of motion things like this so those people you obviously need to ha- know how to kind of teach around that or integrate those those uh limitations that that person have but yet still stay under some of the guidelines of philosophy that you believe and so that's you know so didn't mean to get on a, like on a stand there and preach or, or to you guys, but that's kind of, you know, what we believe anyway.
1: Oh, I love that. And I, you know, I just had a conversation actually on Instagram last night with a, uh, with a follower about, um, with about grip and what, what are fundamentals. And, you know, I, I just think it, you know, it can depend so much on the student. I mean, you look at Zach Johnson's grip compared with Rory McElroy's. I mean, those are light years apart sure. and, um, you know, I, I, I guess, you know, I, I hate to bring up George Gankis, but, you know, you look at what he's talking about with matchups and finding what works for each player. Cause everyone is individual. I think that's a, uh,
2: well, and here's the thing. I mean, the thing about it is is that, um, you know, there's lots of ways to hit the golf ball. There's no question about it. And that's the, the PGA tour is just as big evidence of that as anything else. So so it's never like us teachers and if we have a platform or we have some notoriety whatever, it's really not our, our position to try to preach to everybody and say that we know it all and we, and our way is the best way or it's the only way or whatever. Cause that's, that that's not the truth. And so George has a way of doing things and he's had success. I mean, you can't say that he hasn't had success with some of the people that he's worked with. And uh, you know, he's, he's trying to make people hit the ball as far as they can. And he's found a way that he feels that achieves that. And so, you know, he would be, there'd be a lot of things that would, you know, would it would be quite a bit different than the way we do things, let's say. But I feel like we like, I don't don't feel, I know we've gotten tremendous results and we do get tremendous results. So I know that what we teach works really well too. So I think that's where you got, that's where it kind of circles back around to the beginning of our conversation and, and, um, and, and makes you realize, Hey, I got to get with one person that I trust and that I think it will lead me down the right direction. And then I need to stay with that person long enough, you know, a few years, whatever it may be to see if I keep improving. And I think that's really the key.
1: Awesome. Uh, So, Mike, we just have a few more questions. We're going to go into our Wicked Fire round. Uh, I have four questions for you, actually, today. Um, Favorite
2: hole at Booth Bay Harbor Golf Club? Okay, that one is going to be probably 17. That's the par three down the hill that's really elevated.
1: Now, I heard they were going
2: to change. Go ahead. I, I'm sorry. I
1: thought, I heard they were going to change that hole a little bit. Maybe the green complex.
2: I think they did already. Yeah. They changed it a little bit, but it's still, you know how it had that kind of that big, that huge uh, swale in it, where kind of, where if you kind of got over the ridge, it would funnel all the way down to the corner and they, they still have that, but it's maybe not quite the front of the greens, a little bit more, more, um, t- you know, tame or whatever. And, but uh, it's just a fun golf hole to play. Cause it's, it's a short hole and everybody can hit the green, but it's, but it's so elevated. It, it's certainly probably not the, the prettiest hole on the golf course, but it, but to me, it's a fun hole to play.
1: Yeah. You get a look at the clubhouse and all the pine trees surrounding. I, I think it's a, it's an awesome hole. Uh, favorite place you have been outside of your cabin in booth bay, a Harvard golf club in Maine favorite place you've been.
2: Okay, besides uh well, uh, I would say Christmas Cove <laughs> Christmas Cove. I don't think I've been there. Yeah, it's a fun place to eat and watch watch the uh, you know all the boats and and uh, I would say that and I love I love, I, love I think I've told my wife, I said one of, one of, my, one of my goals is to go let, go stay in those cabins. They've got like four or five cabins that overlook the water right below the swimming pool go stay in those cabins and then travel around to different cities during the day and go shopping or go see the lighthouses or, you know, just take in Maine. So maybe I play some golf as well. So that's a trip on the, on the list, uh, coming up sometime in the near future.
1: Well, uh, we'll have to hit up Jeff Seavey for you to get you a cabin. (laughs) Um, (laughs) yeah, uh, best ball striker you've ever seen in person.
2: Mac O'Grady, without a doubt,
1: and best short game you've ever seen in person.
2: Seve Ballesteros, very cool. Yeah, um, I, I mean, I got to spend some time with him. That was that was pretty. That was a treat for sure. Yeah, I can only imagine. I mean,
1: and all the people he's had an effect on. I mean, even Tiger uh, Reeves about his time with Sevy and um, you know, I, it would be amazing to still have him around in the game and everything that he accomplished, um, you know, unfortunately he passed away, but yeah, he, he yep. was, uh, he was quite a golfer.
2: Yep. Amazing.
1: Well, Mike, we really appreciate you coming on and, um, man, I, I, there's so many great things we, we, I think we got out of this podcast and we really appreciate it. If, for our listeners, where where can they find you if they want to, you know, come try out this wedge range or, or or book a lesson if they're down in Florida? What's the best way to reach you?
2: Well, if they go to our website mikebender. dot uh, uh, and then obviously Instagram would be somewhere where you could you, they could go to Mike Bender on Instagram, and they can and they can start to look at some of the posts that we do, get a feel for some of the things that we do. And, uh, and and our website has all of our phone numbers and everything on it. So that would be probably the easiest way to go.
1: Awesome. And, you know, next time you're up here in Maine, be sure to hit us up. We'd love to invite you up to Sugarloaf or um, out to Martindale where I'll be working this summer. We've got some great courses in Maine if, if you haven't played those yet. And, um, you know, we appreciate you coming on. Be safe and and healthy down there in Florida, okay?
2: Yeah, thanks a lot, you guys. You too. And when uh, and we'll we'll take you up on that, we'll come up there and get a hold of you. Great. All right. Well, yep.
1: And you can find us at main Golf Talk on Instagram, and at Henry Fall Golf and at ZT Zonlo. Uh, We appreciate you guys listening. We hope you enjoyed uh, listening to Mike Bender. I know we certainly did. And we'll see you next time on Maine Golf Talk.